Going up that river was like traveling back to the earliest beginnings of the world, when vegetation rioted on the earth and the big trees were kings. An empty stream, a great silence, an impenetrable forest. The air was warm, thick, heavy, sluggish. There was no joy in the brilliance of the sunshine. The long stretches of the waterway ran on, deserted into the gloom of overshadowed distances. On silvery sandbanks, hippos and alligators sunned themselves side by side. The broadening waters flowed through a mob of wooded islands. You lost your way on that river as you would in a desert, and butted all day along against shoals trying to find the channel, till you thought yourself bewitched and cut off forever from everything you had once known, somewhere far away in another existence, perhaps. Well, today I brought the coffee for Taylor to try. Yeah, and I'm I'm currently looking at the coffee tasting wheel um, to to decide what I think, what notes come out of this coffee. Um, I got, I mean, I still think berry. It's from Ethiopia, so some things are are kind of a given here. Yeah. So I'm going fruity, um, mm-hmm. fruitier, maybe even maybe I don't think floral. I, I think. Berry for sure. Okay. Maybe some red berry. I okay. think raspberry, if anything, maybe. Or I don't know. There's an other fruit category, but there's like a million fruits in there, and then a citrus fruit category, even. And it's it's almost tart like that, but I I'm going. I still think I'm still drawn to blueberry, maybe. Okay. Or or raspberry, one of those. Okay. Um, for sure. And then, man, I don't. I definitely don't get nutty or any kind of spices in it. Yeah, I that's agree. not that's kind of the opposite side of the the tasting wheel. So that's right. Maybe some it's acidic, I think a little bit too, mm-hmm. but not like super sour, but maybe like a little bit of grapefruit in there or something like that. Mm. That that would be my guess, but you okay. know, who who knows. All right. So I have to say it's probably not it's it's not fair because the notes are so oddly specific on this that I just like this is the one I wanted to get first. Great, perfect. So, um, but I <laughs> would, so out of out of three though, I would say like I'd give you one and a half actually. You know what? I'll take that it. Fifty percent is is a great <laughs> great score. But not your fault. I think I, I yeah. These are the notes. The three notes: bubble gum, blueberry, okay, and Swedish fish. Swedish fish? The candy, yes. <laughs> that was not on my tasting wheel. It's no, not fair. Yeah, I feel like I, I, yeah, I, I gypped you on that one. Um, but no, you said the raspberry, right? And yeah. Swedish fish, honestly, are they cherry or strawberry? They I don't, don't have a fl- They're their own thing. That's why they're, but, they're on <laughs> the coffee pack. <laughs> but I will give you that because you said red berry. And I, 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 I want to say Swedish fish. Fit that, Thank you. Fit that I appreciate category. that you gave me that half one. And then blueberry, spot on. Yeah, nailed it. I definitely, I think blueberry is fair. Bubble gum? Yeah, I'm like, not sure like, I actually taste it. Sweetness I understand, but the actual flavor, first of all, what flavor is bubble, I'm trying to reduce right. the flavor of bubble gum to it's like natural, but it's just so you processed, can't. invented. Cane thing sugar? That, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's just sweet. Yeah. It's just a sweet, you know, and the, the notes match for an Ethiopia, but bubble right. gum? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. 
was the one we the one we had last time had like a like curd or like something not oh, curd, custard but custard <laughs> here curd. we go yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that's right that was also another one that's yeah, like pretty bizarre yeah yeah wow and this was in ethiopia how, how do you pronounce that what would you say shantawini mm. of that's my best great the ethiopia shantawini from bolt coffee in providence rhode island you know it just occurred to me we should like does any coffee come from congo because that would be oh, more than yeah. appropriate for right? for this podcast. I think so. Next time, that's on me. I got to look for nice. a, a Congo coffee and order it because <laughs> I've, n- I've never heard blend. of it. Yes, yeah, the heart of darkness blend. <laughs> yeah, that's wow. That Man. I call that. That's for wow. for when I. That's good. Roast coffee someday. <laughs> I'm gonna. That's gonna be my dark roast. Yeah. The heart of darkness. Well, chapter two or part two of uh, Heart of Darkness. Yeah. Um, I mentioned this to you prior to our recording, but it seems to me like the it's a shorter chapter of the book and not much actually progresses in the plot. Mm-hmm. Like, I think if you want it, like, there's only a couple points where you would describe how the plot progressed and what happened compared to part one. But to me, there's a lot that's going on underneath the surface in this chapter. Yeah, it it felt slower, maybe, in terms of the plot and yep. physical location. I think it's hard, because they're moving down river, so I think the setting is nearly the same throughout, which mm-hmm. makes it different, because before we had all the stations, yep. he was moving between and even you know traveling to another continent. I think that helped with the plot, but now it's kind of um, really the in-between, mm-hmm. and it makes sense it'd be in chapter two out of three mm-hmm. that he's just getting to the final definite destination um, mm. instead of, you know, really progressing the plot much. I think there's an idea throughout the whole chapter, actually. He talks about how there's a truth that can be hidden or veiled, like a veiled truth. And you see it actually crops up a couple different times in his description of the jungle itself. Mm. Joseph Conner talks about it when he speaks about the natives as well, and he compares the natives with like the himself or like what he would call civilized man. Mm. Um, and then I think he he begins to talk more about Kurtz as well, this mysterious figure that we still have yet to learn more about. But it's certain that the truth is is hidden or veiled. What you were expecting is not actually the reality. Yeah, I think there's. I think he was even talking about the, the colonists and the, the natives in that sense too, where there's qualities about them that they don't even know themselves. Mm-hmm. There's one part where he's talking about the manager, I think, um, mm-hmm. and that he's been possessed by this lust for ivory mm-hmm. and other goods, mm-hmm. and that that's become a part of him but that he doesn't even know that that's what is that that is a thing that is controlling him Mm. you know so it's it's inside of him but he doesn't know it Mm. and like that's something that's driving him but it's like a mystery that the jungle has gotten into him Mm. you know it's it was a i think it's from that same section that you were just referring to we learn a little bit more about the manager himself just right in the very first couple pages. Uh, Marlo wakes up from sleep hearing voices. He's, I think, asleep on his steamboat. And he hears the manager and the manager's uncle 
um, the leader of the um, El Dorado expedition, mm. <laughs> talking together in the night. And they're talking about Kurtz, and he f- actually fears Kurtz is coming for his position. And they talk about how much ivory Kurtz has brought in. Um, and it seems to be perplexing to them. He brings in so much of this ivory, <laughs> and it's so much of the best quality stuff, but how? How does he do it? Yeah, it's part of the mystery that we're, the plot is building up towards, mm-hmm. I think. That how, how is, why is Kurtz this mythological almost figure to begin with? And then how does he accomplish this task of bringing in just insane sums of ivory and, and goods um, that makes him this mythological figure to everyone else in the company? How does, how does he manage to accomplish that? I did a little bit of research mm. on on ivory actually because I was like, oh, good. how does I I didn't know the exchange rate of of ivory? You yeah. know what okay. what was it worth? Um, and basically, I found out that for for a good kind of exchange rate, it's hard to compare to you know this time in history, uh, you know a few hundred years ago now compared to today. But at the time, a slave one slave might be worth. A tusk of ivory. Wow. So a person's worth. What does that even mean? <laughs> was equivalent <laughs> wow. to, but you can think okay. of the, the value of labor, right? Sure. For for these natives, right? Yeah. Was was worth one small tusk of ivory, um, and this I found one like historical piece of da- data that said nineteen ivory teeth they call them, so tusks, mm-hmm. uh, was worth uh, one thousand five hundred sixty dollars. Wow. Which, I mean, that's in today's standards, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is how I think of that, but I wonder, you know, well, and what the, the rate was back then. And now ivory is $1,500 a tusk. <laughs> wow. Which is why poaching is such a huge, you know, you hear about environmental right. things. But I was just trying to put into context for us, like, what is one of these mm. things worth and why was it so valuable? Because uh, they make such a big deal about it, and particularly the manager, right, right at the beginning there. Yeah. That this conversation Marlowe overhears and they're just the emphasis is so much on on ivory. Um and that's why. Because mm. it was just it was just so so valuable. It was like a dollar per pound at the time. Wow. So it was just that's just to to help that helped me put it into context mm. a little bit so we can think about like as we're talking about Kurtz and he's bringing in tons of ivory, it's like, that's why the company loves him so yeah, much is because it was, it was really significant. And that's also why, it, you know, and as we read, we'll see more of the natives and some of the like enslaved natives even that are helping these pilgrims on their journey and their lives aren't worth anything mm. essentially. <laughs> right. Nor, nor are the lives of the natives in the jungle worth anything really to these, these settlers, these colonists. Because they are just looking for the ivory and the money that follows it, really, in the end. One thing I was going to ask you as a thought here, too, is um, what do you make of the names in the book? The names. The names. Like like the characters' names, you mean? Like Kurtz? Yeah. Marlowe? Yeah. What other names? What other names are there? Oh, the fact that there are none. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, pretty much I don't know why we didn't talk about it last time. Yeah. But as I'm reading, it's occurring to me. The manager. Nearly everyone except for Kurtz and Marlowe. Yeah, those are the only two names I can even think of. Yeah. 
I think there might be a few others. As I was reading, I started to like pay attention. Okay. Might be a few others mentioned, but not actual characters in the story who get real names. Do you yeah. think what do you what do you what do you think about that? Do you think there's a purpose in that? I was trying to like there must be a purpose in it, but what do you think the purpose <laughs> yeah. of that might be? I'm sure there is. I don't know what it is, but <laughs> yeah, I, one not to like justify it because I figure it probably is also like a literary feature, right? For the for like a work, yeah, uh, a literary work. But additionally, I think of if someone were telling a story like a yarn like this, like yeah. Marlowe is out like on the on the. Um, on the river in, in England, you probably wouldn't remember all the names. Mm. Maybe, I mean, that's okay, not, not yeah. to justify no, it, right? yeah, but yeah, that's just enough. one thing yeah. that comes to mind first. Yeah. But I'm sure it also is intentional in trying to hone in on the characters of significance yeah. versus the characters that aren't. In, in what I mean is that the reader should be drawn into the mind or to think about what's going on with Marlowe yeah. and with Kurtz. Yeah. Because like, really those, I think, those are two of the only names I can think of. I know there are probably more. Yeah. But. And the, and I think other names are mentioned in terms of, like, the characters are discussing somebody else. Mm. But as far as I could tell, there are no other characters that actually appear in Marlowe's narrative that, that get a name. Huh. Even the guys in the boat at the beginning of the story that we talked about last time, none of them are named. Mm-hmm. It's like the director, you know, or, or names like yeah. that. They're, or the, the accountant. Oh, yeah. Or, okay. yeah. yeah. And, and they all get these titles, but yeah. not names. Yeah. And I was like, why? Like, I'm, again, as you said, I'm sure there's a reason for that. I'm not sure I know the exact reason. It's probably multiple reasons, but yeah. it's just fascinating it to is. think about. And as you, I don't know why, it's so obvious now in any other book you read, for the most part, you're going to have names of mm-hmm. people. And in this case, it just doesn't. They don't have mm. separate names. Um, I think it's helpful in contrast, you know, when you're reading someone like, um, you know, like Tolstoy, right? We've both read um, uh, War and Peace. There's like a million yeah. possible Probably names in a, in a huge <laughs> narrative that you're keeping track of. And this is so fascinating because there's not that. You don't have to keep track because it's only Marlowe you really care about. Yeah. It's uh, like he won. Yeah. Sorry. No worries. It's like he wants you to hone in on these characters, almost like it's like a character study or something. Yeah, I was, I was. This is kind of maybe a part two to that question. Do you think that that helps emphasize the fact that this might be a psychological narrative yeah. instead of a real life narrative? That's a good point. It occurred to me as I was reading. I was, yeah, I was thinking about how that makes it feel less real. It does. You're right. It sure, it definitely does. Less concrete, maybe. Almost more allegorical. I mean, it's yeah. not. I don't think it's an allegory. I think it's like intended to be a story, but but maybe both. This yeah. to me this is definitely in favor of allegory. Okay. That 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 detail yeah. to me points to allegory more because it reminds me of also like The Pilgrim's Progress, you know where everyone has a a title that is has its own mm-hmm. meaning and they're just representations of of things that are happening in the mind, mm-hmm. right? Instead of actual concrete yeah. characters, I feel like maybe that's a good. I honestly, I was I was on the side of not allegory when we read last time and <laughs> yeah. discussed. And after that, um, as I was reading, and maybe the section in general, because of the lack of plot, might have helped contribute to that too. Mm-hmm. Where it seems more a journey in his mind than it is a journey in real life, mm-hmm. even though it is that too. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's he he just and Joseph Conrad goes back and forth between those two things so often that 
it's hard to distinguish when between the two almost, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what makes it so hard. He talks about real life, concrete things like steering the boat. And then he switches over to this very psychological yeah. narrative well, about the jungle you mentioned yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's a blurring of the lines almost. For sure. That's a fascinating concept. I feel like I have to think it over more before I can give like a definite yeah. statement or position on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Next time you'll have to, you'll tell us <laughs> what, to what, you, it over more. what you think. And when we read part three, the conclusion, right? Maybe there's a resolution in that, in that tension <laughs> yeah. or maybe not to this story. Who okay, knows? Well, I like it. Yeah. Regardless. That's a, I'm, okay. We'll have to follow up on that for next time. For sure. Yeah. We learn more about Kurtz himself throughout the chapter. Um, I think Marla begins to open up more at the end of the chapter, but here in the beginning, uh, we do, we are told in the manager's discussion with the uncle, if you recall, uh, they, they talk about how this one time when Kurtz was coming down the river to drop off ivory, but instead it says he turned his back and he set his face away from home and Kurtz actually went, like he turned around and went back up the stream back up into the darkness of the jungle, uh, back to his, quote, empty and desolate station, right? So, like, when he's when he's delivering the this ivory, he actually has his clerk do it for him and leaves a, a letter <laughs> for the clerk to give uh, to the manager. Meanwhile, Kurtz chooses to return to the jungle instead of come back. Do you remember what the letter says, too? I thought it was kind of funny. I don't remember okay. exactly. Yeah. So in, in essence, the letter that Kurtz gave his clerk to give to the manager says something to the effect of, stop sending me bad workers like this one. <laughs> nice, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. he would rather, but I mean, what that kind of means though, I think is that Kurtz would rather do it alone. Whatever, whatever method he's cooking up to get all this ivory, you know, hidden secret away deep in the jungle it's working out really well for him. Yeah. He's coming with like quality ivory. Where does he get it? And he's actually rejecting like the help that is being brought up to him. Like he's got things set. So it leaves all these questions in the mind of the manager and um and the manager's uncle. Um in this note we also find out that Kurtz is ill and is sick too for the first time. Yeah. I was going to say there's some definite foreshadowing about or I don't know, it it starts to paint Kurtz in a different he was really exalted and lifted up, I'd say, at the beginning. The first like mention of him. Or like yeah, 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 yeah. Mystical. Right. Yeah, mythical, kind of adventurous, even, maybe. Because yeah, I, I still think it, I think they maintain that mythicality to it. Yeah. But the adventurous. Yeah, yeah. And you, know, you were even hero. mentioned last time about, you know, these heroes. And the book mentions these adventurers, right? And I think they're drawing a compare, or, yeah, comparing. Kurtz to these adventurers that he's in the same category as them but then you as you mentioned this this mention of sickness like it adds a, a note different note to mm-hmm. that where he's adventurous and awesome but also something's not quite right clearly based on his actions sending people you know turning around not making contact anymore kind of a loner mm-hmm. um, and then you find out he's sick and that's like even worse on top of that. And why would he turn around if he's sick? Why would he go back into the jungle? Right. Why wouldn't he return to probably all the way to Europe, right? If he was genuinely sick, he would want to go yeah. all the way home. So why why stay in the jungle? What is it about the jungle that, mm-hmm. that Kurtz loves? And why is he able to 
like hack the jungle i don't know to 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 play a role in the jungle that other people can't yeah because clearly these pilgrims struggle in the jungle (laughs) all the yeah all these english people are out of place but something about kurtz he's in the right place apparently for for his character or for his you know his attributes well case in point we in the next page from that discussion we find out that the el dorado expedition dies in the jungle too yeah <laughs> they find all the dead donkeys yeah and i think it's funny he i think he says something about like uh whatever happens to the like lesser valuable animals referring to the men themselves yeah who knows but yeah <laughs> the donkeys were found dead yeah for sure yeah and and adds to the danger of the jungle and references el dorado is a reference to a it's actually a colombian mm. mythical story okay about this king who lived in the jungle who had like tons of gold and people yeah and exactly it's it's like a direct reference kurtz is el dorado really but in in this book at least and i don't i i know that was intentional by conrad i'm sure he knew the legends Mm. and i know that europe sent people as you know in that age of exploration that they were looking for this gold rich king for obvious reasons Mm. because they wanted to be uh, rich themselves but it's just conrad knew his kind of his mythology even of other continents and then applied it to the congo here and was like this is what this this legendary gold rich king is is kurtz um and i just thought that was a funny like reference to this el dorado expedition that also fails and yeah. is not working and you're like wonder what's gonna happen mm-hmm. you know to this very expedition that we're reading about now mm-hmm. right because you can't help but wonder what what the outcome is yeah. going to be here yeah yeah i really like the descriptions of the jungle itself and the river yeah he talks about how the river is very like dangerous to navigate and one of like the trickiest like expeditions of sailing he's he's encountered in his time with all these like snags and it's just like a challenging river so he like when he's on the river um he has to stay alert like at all times just to even keep this um this ship afloat yeah it's kind of perilous the whole journey um every it's like every turn comes up with a new and he's in this rickety boat that Mm -hmm. like wasn't even ready when he got there and all of that so it's yeah it's it's uh really a fascinating story about a journey also that's full of dangers and encounters. One thing I was thinking about, so Joseph Conrad loves to use the words incomprehensible. And yes, yes, he does. Just just basically all of the words about mystery to the point where this is the first time I've read through where I'm paying this much attention to the text. So I'm noticing all of these words. Um, incomprehensible enigma comes up like multiple i've never heard anyone use that phrase multiple times and i was i think i was reading someone else and one of their critiques was that they felt like he was maybe too mysterious Hmm. in this book like if you read heart of darkness and you were not someone who appreciated the theme of mystery Hmm. or not knowing where the text is going or even the plot points aren't always really clear yeah, if that makes sense, right. they're they're not explained fully, and they jump from scene to scene, and you maybe, can miss something. Well, yeah, it's, it's so really subtle. really easy to miss something, and that's why you know, reading this at different times and at different ages and stuff makes a difference. Also, because I feel like I miss things in the past for sure when I just skimmed it, or you can't really skim it. I think and understand, but do you get do you get the sense that 
it's the tank, the, and maybe this is just a personal opinion matter, but do you feel like there's too much mystery in Heart of Darkness? Like, for it to be, that that takes away from its effectiveness, maybe? Are you discussing, like, the writing itself? Yeah. The flow of narrative? Yeah, I mean, both. It, it just, it, and I didn't notice it until I, that idea came up to me, and then I, as I'm reading, I just realize how often he's like, this was a mystery, this was a incomprehensible, this was an enigma, like, those words appear <laughs> every time there's a internal monologue or internal thought process, those yeah. words appear. And I just wanted to see if you... And I even think I agree with that person who made that critique to an mm. extent. That, mm -hmm. like, th there's almost too much that's not concrete in terms of maybe an enjoyable reading experience. Do you, do you like, identify with that? Do you think you, you recognize that as you were reading? I definitely recognize it. And I think that it's super intentional because it's, like, a, like it's a very tangential narrative. And, and you even find... Like, he mixes, like, he'll talk, he'll be talking about the setting and what's going on, and then, like you said, he'll just dive right into, like, the psychological deep end within, yeah. within the same yeah, paragraph and sure. then back out. So yeah. I think it's, to me, it's equal, it's, like, frustrating because I have to go back. Yeah. Right? right? Yeah. But at the same time, it's also, it's another just one of those rewarding things. I noticed in my experience, when I was just going back, trying to find a specific um, event that happened, pretty significant in this chapter, we haven't gotten to it yet, but... Like, I couldn't find it. And I had to flip through, and I had to end up reading, like, one or two pages to actually find it because the event was tucked away in this, in a deep in a paragraph. Yeah. But that is, but that point, like, shifted the whole plot. Yeah. Um, but I find it, equal, like, frustrating, but equally enjoyable upon, like, reading it. Yeah. Again. Yeah. I feel, I feel the same way, I think, ultimately. I just like psychologically interesting books like naturally mm -hmm. that's just something i find all forms of entertainment i enjoy if they have that that kind of perspective to it so i think i particularly like connor and maybe for that same reason that other people when they read it would just wouldn't appreciate at all mm -hmm. i think if you're really want simple straightforward narrative you know which i think characterizes probably a lot of books in general i don't think that's too bold to say that a lot of books that are published are just very straightforward mm -hmm. narratives. Um, and Conrad's not that at all. I think that's really what I love about him. But I know I know people for certain who would just hate reading him. And probably why people hate reading him, you know, when they have to read <laughs> yeah, Heart of Darkness school. in high school. Yeah, that's the exact reason. And so hopefully, you know, hopefully what we're doing here, we can show appreciation for his his writing as we discuss it. But I... I do understand also why people might might not appreciate the the mystery and the lack mm -hmm. of clarity as you're reading because I think that's pretty universal with his other books, but maybe specifically with Heart of Darkness that comes out even more than yeah. in his other works. I think it's akin to like a Christopher Nolan movie. Like some yeah. people like it's like like for me it's like candy. Right, like I just love Christopher Nolan, but then other people like they just have a hard time following. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's the exact the exact same thing. I think maybe the length of the book plays a role here too in this this discussion mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. he packed a lot yeah. of thought processes into a short narrative book. I feel like in some of his longer narratives, there's more plot in between. Yeah, those occurrences. So yeah. I'm thinking, you know, um, my personal favorite Conrad book, Lord Jim, is a is a longer book. And so there's more plot in between 
you the parts where you get the the you know the narrator's internal dialogue is just longer stretches and i think that might help um some people in those cases i think this is his only book that's like this I think it's his only book that's quite as intense as this, and maybe, and maybe that's why it's his most well-known book. Who knows? I don't. Yeah. I don't really know, but that that could be a reason why it's it's the most most well-known. Yeah. I'm gonna read this quote. Yeah, um, it's a passage that is again weaving in and out of descriptions of the land and that kind of psychological um, aspect of it. He says that the earth seemed unearthly. We are accustomed to looking upon the shackled form of a conquered monster. But there, there you could look at a thing monstrous and free. In the depths of the wilderness, it really is like a wild and untamed. And I think that's also descriptive of the things that we will find go on here. And even part of like Kurtz's methods for getting ivory, they're just definitely yeah un <laughs> uncivilized almost like inhumane at times as we'll see um but it's almost like the jungle itself and how untamed it is you know is akin to the moral darkness and the moral um corruption that it seems like the jungle almost causes upon people who enter it yeah but he he recognizes that it seems unearthly. The jungle seems unearthly, but mm. then he also contrasts that with like, there's something more human about them. Mm. Mm-hmm. That the fact that th- this is this is like core humanity. It's just a different. Yeah. T- it's it's less civilized to him maybe, but it's like a core type. I actually I was just gonna read from the same passage. I might read a little more if you if you don't mind. Go ahead. Um. So he said, uh, it was unearthly. And the men were, no, they were not inhuman. Well, you know, that was the worst of it. This suspicion of their not being inhuman. It would come slowly to one. They howled and leapt and spun and made horrid faces. But what thrilled you was just the thought of their humanity, like yours. The, up, the thought of your remote kinship with this wild and passionate uproar. Ugly, yes, it was ugly enough. But if you were man enough, you would admit to yourself that there was in you just the faintest trace of a response to the terrible frankness of that noise. A dim suspicion of there being a meaning in it, which you, you so remote from the night of first ages could comprehend. I thought that was awesome. I, I, I have become more convinced as we read that Conrad while certainly a product of his time, we had some of this discussion last time, is is specifically not worse a racist than than <laughs> anyone. I don't know how to you know how to put that yeah. nicely, but you know, he's saying like this is an ugly demonstration and, and that, you know, is not a positive attribute, maybe, but he was saying there's kinship and there's shared humanity between these colonists and these people that ha- seem so far removed, but he's like, but deep down there's a similarity, there's a sameness. Yeah. And I think even recognizing that is, is a, a valuable thing for someone of this era, just to be like, there is a similarity compared to maybe the pilgrims who are just like, we have to shoot and kill them and aren't thinking about it. But Marlowe mm-hmm. is very specifically like these people are human and you're mm-hmm. human too. And you would recognize that if you thought about it for a minute. Yeah. 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 yeah.
he also refers to that, I think in this, I want to say it's the same passage too, even later he says, um, he refers to it as truth stripped of its cloak of time. Yeah. As if time, culture, and what he calls principles, like moral, you know, external moral um, principles, have an influence in covering up one's true nature. Like even the civilized man um, or enlightened man coming out into the Congo to these, how he calls them prehistoric people. Yeah. Um, there's something, you know, a remote kinship between the two of them. And again, it's that theme that, again, earlier, even as we spoke, like that there's a truth that's hidden in the jungle, right? Even here, now we see it unveiled. It's truth that's been stripped of its cloak of time. Yeah. And he, he compares even the, that truth then to this person who's working in his boat, this, this guy in the boiler. The fireman? Room. Yeah. The fireman. Yeah. Which Again, is just a funny no character name. Yeah. No. Um, but he, I, I think he refers to him with dignity. It's weird. He, he says like, he doesn't understand the steam boiler that he's working on that runs this steamboat. But I think he's trying to make a comparison where he's saying like, he was trained to do this just like the rest of us were trained mm -hmm. to dress in these fancy clothes and be civilized. Yeah. But then there's this native who knew nothing of machinery or running a steamboat, but here he is trained to help run a steamboat. And he might think there's some witchcraft or magic involved yeah. that, that, you know, Marlowe knows better than that maybe, but, and he, that makes the, the native primitive in some way, but at the same time he's functioning as a human being alongside him. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, again, there's value in that. Um, and even these, these other natives on the boat that he has a closeness to, even though they don't communicate or really in the same way, or, or, um, even if there is a hierarchy among them, there is this like working together to accomplish the goal of running. This boat is, is part of their mm -hmm. camaraderie maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Another an aspect about this part of the narrative too that's just funny is that I for, and I, that I forgot about is that it's a bunch of cannibals who are up on the ship with him. Yeah, <laughs> like no mention of how this band of cannibals was like brought up with him, but just all of a sudden he's out there on a boat. <laughs> and and I love the moment when he realizes that that they're all hungry, like their <laughs> rations are not that not good enough to feed everyone or they they get like a morsel or whatever daily. And he, he just occurs to him that he's on this boat full of cannibals who are hungry now. And that's just a, a strange place to be. I, yeah, I quite enjoyed that. Yeah. There's some humor like in that narrative. think about it sure. beforehand. Yeah. Know, or, then, yeah. I mean, maybe that's, Hey, if maybe it's allegorical in some sense. <laughs> maybe, see, that's what I mean though. What, what, what could be that? I have no idea. It's a great question. Fair enough. I appreciate the contrast of the pilgrims or the workers that are with uh, the company and those natives. Um, in particular, the man in the pink pajamas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tucked into his socks, right? Yes. I love it. Yes. That's the, a little fat man with sandy hair and red whiskers who wore side spring boots and pink pajamas tucked into his socks. <laughs> I love it. What could be more out of place in the Congo? 
on the river. It, for sure, on a boat <laughs> in the jungle, right? In this this foreboding darkness of a jungle and the pink pajamas on the boat. Again, that that's a theme I think maybe you could really latch on to, too, is just what people are wearing is yeah. symbolic throughout the whole the whole book. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about the other station managers, a few of them, and just the contrast of their starched collars mm. and their pink pajamas. Such an unnatural look in this very natural, earthy place. Mm-hmm. It almost gives it like a, like in my mind at least, n- not intentional probably on his on the author's behalf, but in my mind it almost like um, gives an image of like this like wonderland kind of like idea of, yeah, know, like something just surreal. It's yeah. A, it's surreal that like someone wearing pink pajamas would be like out in the middle of this like jungle where yeah you know, people are dying and all this stuff yeah and that's part of the maybe this i've never thought of this book maybe as a kind of an, almost in like an epic narrative maybe it's the right way you know we have there's epics in in history that are all about a journey that someone takes to accomplish some you know the greeks had had epics where they you know some great war some great you know thing to resolve in their social world or whatever um, that was full of mythical encounters along the way. And I never thought about it as this book, as one of those types um, of narratives. <laughs> well, until, it's almost like an anti, yeah, whatever that was. Yeah, called. yeah, like anti-heroic narrative, right? Yeah. That it's, it's... It's a descent into yeah. insanity. Yeah, so. really, though. And I think the absurdity helps with that, right? Mm-hmm. Is your, your encounter these absurd... the the ship shooting into the jungle, right, for no reason, mm-hmm. is an absurd sight. We talked about that. And every encounter is another layer of absurdity as he... The cannibals the... on the boat. Yeah, right, yeah, in the pink pajamas. We can touch on this more in the our gospel reflection, but it's interesting how there's some kind of religious overtones. Um, I think when Marlowe hears like the rolling of drums and like this, you know, in the, yeah. in the brush and like howling of, of natives who were out in the jungle somewhere. He says, whether it meant war, peace or prayer, we could not tell. Um, but there's some kind of, you know, there, there's almost like a religious or like pagan uh, mysticism <laughs> themes that are, are at least assumed in the mind of Marlowe about the natives here. The prehistoric man, he says was, Cursing us, praying to us, welcoming us. Who could tell? Yeah. And that line is, it's interesting because I think that we'll find out that, I guess what happens next, it kind of is all three of those. What I mean to say, I'm just going to jump into it, is when they get attacked, when they get attacked by the natives. Yeah. um, Right afterwards, they're like, what is going on? And we'll touch on that next, but um we'll find out that it kind of was all three that kind of was them cursing them it kind of was them praying to them and welcoming them at the same time yeah but uh, i like that there's mystery around the sound when they first Mm. encounter it that Mm -hmm. no one some of the other the other um you know europeans are like what do you think it means are they gonna attack right and and marlo's like i don't i don't know your, your guess is as good as mine, but, I mean, they soon find out as the attack commences, you know, pretty shortly mm-hmm. in the book. But, yeah, it's a... And the weird relationship the native have, natives have with the colonists, too, um, which is going to get even more complicated, as we see as we <laughs> oh, yeah. read. 
Um, but that they, they are afraid, but they're, there's like a reference to mm-hmm. the, maybe just the technological ability, right? So we, yeah. we learn later, I don't think this is, you know, skipping ahead too much, but like the whistle yeah. on the steamboat is a massive weapon just because of the noise it's able to make, but compared to their guns, which are not scary for <laughs> whatever reason, which is just fascinating that the relationship of the natives is they esteem what might be to them magical or, or something, um, or the, just the advanced technology, but they're, they're afraid and they're, they also recognize the danger of what mm. the Europeans are doing to their country and to them, right, yeah. as they enslave them. To touch on the, that men in the pink pajamas, just one last time, I think it's funny, now that we've ta- started talking about the attack, right? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. kind of like the peak, I think, of this chapter, um, which yeah. interestingly, that's the same event I was trying to find, but I couldn't because the beginning of the attack is so subtle. It actually happens with, I think, there's a guy who has a pole who's measuring the depth of the thing, so he's laying down on the boat, but, like, Marlo just notices that he's just dragging it in the water. It's because he's dead, because he's, yeah. he's been shot by an arrow. So it's, like, a subtle... Like, even this peak of the chapter is so subtle in the narrative that you miss it if you're not paying attention. Anyway, Man in the Pink Pajamas. I just thought it was funny that once the attack commences... He comes up to Marlowe and he says, The manager sends me, he began in an official tone and stopped short. Good God, he said, declaring, er, glaring at the wounded man. Uh, it was just funny that even, like, he's just so ill-prepared for any danger in the jungle that even when danger strikes and there's a dead man, he still feels the need to you know, come up with an official, uh, official tone, like the manager sends me on behalf of, you know, yeah. on behalf of the company. It's like, bro, like, I don't know, this, you're being attacked right now. As if the jungle cares or the natives care, right? <laughs> like, yeah, they have no, clearly no fear of that, I don't know, superiority yeah. of, of the Europeans. Yeah. And during the attack also, when all of these Europeans have their rifles and they're just shooting mm-hmm. into the jungle, even though they can't see anything. And they're shooting, and the again, maybe another absurd encounter, but Marlo's trying to steer the boat, and he said the cloud was obscuring his vision to be able to see. <laughs> so they're they're accomplishing nothing by shooting, first of all, like yeah. as far as they can tell. From the hip. They're not hitting, yeah, from the hip. And they're not hitting anything because they can't see anything in the jungle really anyway, except for glimpses here and there. But then the giant cloud of all the, the rifle uh, smoke is just keeping Marlo from being able to steer the boat. And then later on, one of them is like, well, we gave him like our, our best, you know, like we tried to get him and Marlo was like, yeah, well, you, you made it hard to see. Like, you did that, at least. But they, they're not accomplishing anything yeah. by their what they view as their superior ability yeah. and tactics. And it, I think it's an intentional point by Conrad to kind of level, mm-hmm. again, which I think he's done the whole time, is, like, hold these as equal people, even if one thinks they're far superior than the other. And right. he's like, yeah, but you're ineffective and yeah. failing at every every turn. Yeah, they're not actually as qualified as they think they are. They're really not. They're not qualified at all, in fact, with their huge caravan of things and and all of that. (laughs) True. And this is where, too, like, I think more is added to the Kurtz narrative Mm -hmm. now, where there's fear that if we're being attacked at this point, then 
certainly Kurtz has been attacked yeah. at this point too. Right. And and I think it's because they're close geographically yeah. to the location. So the assumption is if they're They've only taken over the station. Right. right. If they're only miles away and they're shooting at us like this, then certainly uh even the mention that Kurtz might be dead is is the first the first mention, which I think is fascinating. That this is a quick turn from sick, you know, yeah. the, this lofty yeah. to sick to to questionable to oh, we're almost certain he's not alive anymore. He must have been killed by these natives. Yeah. And Marlow realizes that um like what he was really looking forward to is just speaking with Kurtz and like kind of probing his mind, you know, and just like having a discussion, I guess, with him. Yeah. This mystical man that he's been has really been hyped up this whole time. Yeah, he said he he says himself he he just wished he had been able to talk to him. He he said he never cared about even seeing him or hearing him. He just wanted to be able to have a conversation mm-hmm. um with with Kurtz. Um he says uh the point was in his being a gifted creature talking about Kurtz and that all of his gifts the one that stood out preeminently that carried with it a sense of real presence was his ability to talk his words the gift of expression the bewildering the illuminating the most exalted and the most contemptible the pulsating stream of light or the deceitful flow from the heart of an impenetrable darkness hmm. pretty sure that's another t- he uses those words too impenetrable I, yes, darkness yes i agree times. yeah heart of darkness is an appropriate term for for this this book for that reason i think in part for the repeating theme of darkness over and over again the heart of darkness still less i thought it was interesting when i was writing my notes out i uh about this again this is his kind of tangential train of thought uh it hovers between the present and the future of the story because he's in the present on the boat but he talks about this future time when he like does hear the voice of kurtz yeah Um, but the whole thing is happening in the past because marlo's telling it on a boat in england just neat yeah there's these three layers of time i'm telling you it adds to the to the theme i think of allegory (laughs) to have the stream of time i feel like i'm yeah watching an episode of lost or you know some some Uh other thing that played with you know plays with the time stream and you never you sort of know where you are but you're also constantly thinking about what he's referring to or where the dialogue is happening. Is it past, present, future, you know, continuing? Who knows? What do you think about the pamphlet? When he starts speaking about Kurtz, what are your thoughts on the whole pamphlet that Kurtz wrote for this organization? Yeah. So this, I think it starts to paint Kurtz in a even more negative light mm-hmm. based on his mm-hmm. own opinion throughout this whole thing and then you encounter this part where he writes about um you know the natives and uh being in uh the wilderness and just how he views them and i don't know that i know what to make of it i mean it's i think it paints him like i said in a negative light um but i don't know what the purpose of the pamphlet part was for the narrative mm-hmm. as a whole mm-hmm. like how does that help the plot I'm not sure I fully understood that part myself. Did you have more thoughts on that? Well, I think it's significant that the name of the organization is the International <laughs> Society for the Suppression of Savage Customs. <laughs> oh, gosh, and yeah. I, th- I think it's supposed to paint a picture of, you know, he's he has this, like, academic writing style. It's, like, a beautiful, like, I think, like, 17-page, like, pamphlet. Yeah. But he says it provides no practical, actual... <laughs> ways of, of of doing what he's saying 
um, except for a footnote at the end that was written in at the end, and it says, exterminate the brutes. Yeah. So, and, and what, which looks like it was added on afterwards, as if there was, like, what he had written in the pamphlet before coming to the jungle and being corrupted by darkness was all these high and lofty, you know, like, you know, yeah. ways of doing it with no practical means to the end. And then he adds on this, like, scribbled in footnote, like, just exterminate all the brutes. Yeah. And we also will see here about how he, he talks here about how the natives have essentially turned him into an idol. And this is when we yeah. learn the most about Kurtz. Yeah. Yeah. And even Marlowe having Kurtz as an idol in himself, mm. I think is this, this really hard to understand. I think this is one of those psychological parts, but, um, uh, he says, uh, but most of us are neither one nor the other. The earth for us is a place to live in where we must put up with sights, with sounds, with smells too. Um, He says, breathe dead hippo, so to speak, and not be contaminated. (laughs) He's just talking about the jungle, like going and being in the jungle in the space where all these sights and smells, but not be contaminated by the jungle. Like, is that possible? Is it possible for us to be in that setting and not be contaminated by those things? It says, your strength comes in, the faith in your ability for the digging of unostentatious holes to bury the stuff in, your power of devotion, not to yourself, but to an obscure, backbreaking business. And that's difficult enough. I'm not trying to excuse or even explain. I'm trying to account to myself for Mr. Kurtz, for the shade of Mr. Kurtz. This initiated wraith from the back of nowhere honored me with its amazing confidence before it vanished altogether. A lot there. I don't even know that I understand everything that was (laughs) happening in there. But I think it's interesting. I think he sees Kurtz in himself, right? And he's saying, like, this idea I had of this wraith from from nowhere got into me, right? And then it's he's trying to account for it. Like, how does this sneak in? to who we are, this darkness sneak in. Mm-hmm. And it's just a, a fascinating, like he recognizes that, um, that Kurtz got into him and it's quickly vanishing this idea of Kurtz mm-hmm. who was lofty and is now breaking apart in himself as he travels through the jungle. I yeah. think that's what he's saying there. I'm not hundred percent sure, mm-hmm. but that's my best guess. Yeah. Well, what you were saying in that passage about how the go- like the jungle itself corrupts yeah. what goes into it. It said, he describes Kurtz as saying, the wilderness had patted him on the head, and behold, it was like a ball, an ivory ball, his bald head. The jungle had caressed him, and lo, he had withered. Yeah. It had consumed his flesh and sealed his soul to its own by the inconceivable ceremonies of some devilish initiation. Yeah. It goes on to say how he had taken a high seat amongst the devils of the land. Yeah. I mean, literally, is what he... Talk about how he comes as this man from the company who is this big hero, you know, guiding the company. But what he devolves into because of the jungle, it says that maybe his nerves went wrong and caused him to preside at certain midnight dances, ending with unspeakable rites. As far as I reluctantly gathered from what I had heard at various times were offered up to him these natives are actually sacrificing and like worshiping Kurtz himself. Like this is what, like he comes in with this as an academic intelligent man on behalf of the civilized society. But what is truly going on here is him 
abusing that power and somehow turning into almost a god who is sacrificed to and taking part in these like midnight ritual dancing like just going off the deep end yeah yeah that and that's kind of the where this is this is going and the surprising part about the end of this section right mm-hmm. is that not only is kurtz not dead mm-hmm. but there's this kind of frivolous attitude towards the natives at the the end so when they arrive at the station right mm-hmm. and they're greeted and they're like oh yeah that those are just the natives they and they they're simple actually, people they're simple people and they don't want him to leave mm-hmm. and that's what apparently precipitated this attack on the steamboat in the yeah. first place yeah. right and they it was the opposite of what they were thinking they're thinking we're coming into the jungle and being attacked because they don't want us there which might be partly true also, but the reality is that they don't want Kurtz to be taken away from the jungle. They love Kurtz. Yeah, that he's been elevated into this idol of the jungle. And at the same time, he himself has been corrupted mm-hmm. by the jungle, right? And this, this ball of ivory, as it's, as it's put, yeah, wild, that he's been so consumed by ivory and at the same time is an idol in the jungle. Yeah. Um, This is a line from the pamphlet that Kurtz wrote. He writes that we must necessarily appear to the savages in nature of supernatural beings. We must approach them with the might of a deity. Yeah. That's like, that's his proposal as to how white, you know, the the civilized man should approach them is like, assert your deity in front of these people. Yeah. And you'll be able to control them. Yeah. I think it's powerful that Joseph Conrad is is addressing that deity and saying, in this case, that it's kind of an illusion, right? Like the person who Mm -hmm. is the deity turns out not to be. Oh yeah. And that's a powerful cultural narrative for every English person reading this, right? Mm -hmm. And a condemnation on the English people in general, right? What everything Kurtz represents is not worth idolizing or it's, it's it's broken apart. Right. And well, I'm sure we'll talk about that more in, in our section on, kind of how Christian gospel applies, but it certainly is a condemnation of yeah. of that elevated status of Europeans and their moral superiority. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then lastly we meet the the character named the Harlequin or you know, he's the clown basically. He's described as looking like a clown, and it's funny if you actually Google image pictures of like Harlequin from like that time period, the early nineteen hundreds. He, yeah, it's a little different, I think, than the clowns we think of today. Yeah, but like wearing all these different like patterns and stuff, like a court jester almost. Yeah, yeah. And again, this just adds immensely to that how surreal and almost like Wonderland esque this whole thing is. But this Harlequin is like this childish boy-like like flippant emotionally flippant yeah um guy who is like idolizing kurtz himself he's like basically the right-hand man of kurtz yeah and and marlo has this book that he's picked up on his journey to return back to him which is such a strange detail also um but yeah this this guy who also is nameless right and but plays the strange role of being close to kurtz and this whole section ends on kind of that that note of we know Kurtz is here. He mentions that he's mm. present right up the the road, kind of, and uh, they are gonna about to encounter him. 
the guy, the guy we've been waiting to see. Yeah. But we don't get to see him yet this in this section. It. Yeah. Yeah. This and some it. kind of a cliffhanger where you're about to encounter the, the man himself that this is all about, whole journey is about. Let's talk about how the gospel informs our understanding of this chapter. Yeah, for sure. When Marlowe overhears the discussion between the manager and his uncle, the kind of authority that they have is just really corrupt, as we know. But they make it known um, by the threat of hanging a man. They conjecture that someone is actually stealing some of the ivory. They talk about a wandering trader. They refer to him as a pestilential fellow snapping ivory from the natives. They accuse him of stealing the ivory. Um, and I believe that that probably is the Harlequin. I'm not sure. But they, they, they talk about actually hanging this man as an example in order to keep people from stealing ivory and kind of like conflating their ivory gains um yes and the manager says why not anything anything can be done in this country huh. but this is the kind of uh, like authority with which the manager and his uncle um who kind of run the, i think the central station um, have the idea that they can do whatever they want in this country they can hang a man as an example it's just so different than if anything that they would have done back home you know back in europe yeah. And I think that we see the lack of accountability of the jungle and the corruption that the jungle like infuses into, into people or the true colors that are shown from people in the jungle is just revealed to us. We see that the heart of man, um, mm. we are corrupt and we do have these desires to just, you know, do really wicked things to assert authority. Yeah, it's like the Wild West and like anything goes mm. and that one absolute freedom, absolute license to do as you want. And to feed your greed, maybe, in particular, in this case, might be one of yeah. the prevailing, right, like, you know, sins, if we're going to call them that, of of the colonists, that, that greed is the one that comes up. Or even idolatry, maybe, is even more kind of core that is shown through greed. Yeah. But this idolatry of not just prosperity, but of this very specific form of prosperity in ivory, mm. right? That this is the thing that is going to give them value. But also, there's other things, too. There's prestige, right, they're going for, I think, by, you know, he's talking about yeah. envying Kurtz, right, for no yeah. other reason than that he wants to be a, a more prioritized person in the company or whatever, right? And that's mm -hmm. a really, I think that applies just as much now as it did yeah. then, right? Like, envy and greed is a driving factor in our workplaces and in our lives, right? It's kind of a standard maybe particularly in an American culture, right? That, like, you climb the social ladder and you do what it takes to get there, right? And I think that's what you were talking about. He was, well, we can hang him if, if that's what it takes, right? And they have that authority and that ability just in pursuit of their own desires, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. This wicked act of murder to justify their own pride and, and yeah. wealth building and... Um, it's sin issues like this that are, you know, that the scripture actually tells us is pretty much innate to our own hearts yeah. that we just keep secret and hidden. And, um, but if they were to actually work themselves out 
in the heart from the heart of man into actions of man it would look like murdering and and this is what like jesus talks about in the beatitudes and the sermon on the mount um and he says the person who hates his brother has already murdered him yeah in reality so it reminds me a little bit of that yeah it's like but, kind of the logical end of our thoughts right it's mm-hmm. is what jesus addresses there and certainly is true in this case i think another factor too is just that and we might have mentioned this a little bit last time also but um just that these are people who are coming under the guise of Christianity yeah. at least. Right. But then there's no actual application of what they in theory believe about the Bible in terms of how they interact with their neighbor. Right. Mm-hmm. There's just no overlap. There seems to be no overlap. Right. They're just, it's, yeah. it's all greed, but in theory, these are the Christians. Right. And I think, um, Conrad might even be playing on that theme a little bit too, that there's just so much hypocrisy um, religiously or not in these people because they, they're just as greedy as any, anyone else and killing someone isn't outside of the realm of, of possibility for them. There's not any sense of kind of a renewed person, a new person in, in these characters. They're just full of their own desire, I guess is the only way to put it. I, I think the the theme of idolatry that I mentioned too is just really big. When you read that passage about the Kurtz being destroyed by this ball, that's, mm. that's ivory. That was really striking. Well, it was, to that's me. referring to his head. He realized, Oh, Oh, it's right. His yeah. Bald head, but same but, thing. <laughs> yeah, but he's still like, he's, he's pursuing this ivory, like as an object, right. It's yes. like that resembles yeah. himself. No yeah. less. Right. Yeah. In his own, his own bald head, but this pursuit of ivory, obviously is a theme throughout the whole thing and how that the desire for that thing destroys the people who desire it mm-hmm. um, really came through in this section. I think as they get deeper into the jungle and they become more and more in proximity to the actual thing itself, which is the wealth of ivory, um, the people are continuously disfigured even like disformed mm-hmm. in their, at least in their hearts, but also physically, but then mm-hmm. it leads to death. Yeah. Ultimately, and that's like super Christian, right? It's like these idols mm-hmm. that we create in ourselves um, cause our deterioration. Uh, and even, you know, the wages of those idols is death, ultimately, right? Yeah. That's the, the ultimate price for these things. And that's like really vivid in, in, a, in a really kind of literary way in this book. I think that this driving force is just destroying. I mean, whole civilizations are being disrupted by this ivory trade and ultimately destroys the people who pursue it too yeah um that it it, no one is spared in this endeavor right like everyone loses the natives lose (laughs) and the europeans are losing too no one no one is winning this battle over essentially greed i think Mm -hmm. yeah and i think of john calvin who says that the heart is a factory of idols and you know the gospel provides a solution to this and idolatry is just misplaced worship it's misplaced upon you know anything else that is un, unworthy of our worship the only thing that is worthy is god himself everything else is going to be destructive to us everything else is going to lead us to death but it's by the expulsive power of a greater object that for christians that being god um he becomes who we worship and uh he's life-giving rather than you know eternal death that yeah. comes from any other type of idolatry yeah he he reorders our 
affections, I think is how Augustine put it, right? There's a hierarchy of loves and God being at the top helps reorder the rest of them, Mm -hmm. right? So that they're proper um, and in their right place. But God is always, should be at the top of that, that hierarchy here. And I think there's an interesting, too, something I thought about in terms of leadership, maybe, or uh, prominent figures and how we, in terms of the relationship between Marlowe and Kurtz, I think there's a relationship or there's a lesson in that relationship throughout this book that someone who, they all kind of idolize the ivory, but but Marlowe has this, I think you said fascination, right, is maybe the prevailing theme um, mm. or preoccupation with Kurtz as this this grand leader yeah. and that that's disappointing. I think there's something there too for, for Christians, you know, it's something that's a theme that's present in our, in our churches now, you know, with, mm. um, you know, prominent pastors or other human leaders that ultimately really disappoint in the end you find out that they're not really who we made them out to be in our minds right we we painted our own picture of of some that they're these grand people and in really in reality they're they're not worth pursuing Mm -hmm. in that sense and and marlo's journey is at least disappointing so far right Mm -hmm. and we're going to see more of that i think as we get to the end that kurtz's is fascinating, but probably not someone worth idolizing or worshiping, <laughs> yeah. right? When we get to the end and it gets darker and darker too, that that idolatry, like I said, causes problems for Marlowe himself, makes him into someone mm-hmm. different. Yeah. Um, again, we see, uh, I think as Christians, we have to wrestle with the the way that Joseph Conrad describes the natives. Yeah. Right. And just the, the time period that it was, um, thinking about man being made in the image of God, the way that he describes the uh, <laughs> the fireman, right? But he sees that there are similarities between this quote-unquote prehistoric man and uh, himself. Um, I do appreciate that he does, like, he. I think he does speak with some, like, dignity toward him that he's able to, like, learn how to navigate, you know, a, a steamer yeah. and know how to how to use it, but... Like you were saying, he says that the fireman probably has some, like, pagan religious idea of some evil spirit who, like, howls really loud when you don't, you know, put the coals in or something like that. Yeah. You know? Um, but it it's interesting how the only ways that religion is spoken of are... It's under the assumption that it's silly. Or it's like stupid. Like the you know civilized man would be more enlightened to that than that. Yeah. Um, when really, all that we see about religion that's spoken of, it's just like a kind of divine retribution. Yeah. That's not actually, you know, that I guess real biblical Christianity could be called distinct from. It's not just offering sacrifices up and you know to appease the wrath of some like evil spirit or even of God Himself. Yeah. That's actually not biblical Christianity. No. And I think that Joseph Conrad was really shown as a product of his times here because that was a very, you know, they're experiencing some industrial revolution already a little bit. And that just built this confidence in humans as like uh, they're able to do anything, right? Like we don't need God because it's, as you mentioned, it's superstition, right? Or it's just some um, silliness right. that shouldn't be believed in. That's a good way um, to put it, superstition. Yeah, and but then 
um, kind of the whole world discovers in World War One and World War Two that despite all our technological advances, that morally we're still horrible. I mean, the whole world witnessed the Holocaust happening, mm. you know, soon after mm. this time period. And in observing that, the whole world went, oh, we might be technologically advanced, <laughs> but we haven't we, yeah. we haven't arrived at whatever we thought we did. And that actually, it led to a theological resurgence, which is fascinating. But huh. I think Joseph Conrad might have kind of gotten to the heart of that a little bit in this book that like despite the the technological advances that they had that like the insides were all wrong mm-hmm. um that morally something was wrong and i think that makes joseph conrad a fascinating writer because as you said like and i know from other things he's spoken about he wasn't particularly religious himself i mean he grew up in a christian culture um and probably understood that but he didn't practice it and he probably did think there was some silliness involved in in the practice of christianity but at the same time he had a deep sense of the depravity of human beings that's you know that's a christian way of putting it but Mm -hmm. he had a deep sense of moral brokenness Mm -hmm. um and that's something he writes about in all his his books Mm -hmm. is this this like we all have deep flaws that or you know in the case of kurtz it's just a really flawed human being but even other characters in his books are just like they're he he likes to illustrate their that they're broken and that there's a problem with that and they're not all great and they're not (laughs) kurtz isn't a great explorer who is doing (laughs) glorious things at all um and i think that that's an interesting contrast it feels like he doesn't have the he recognizes the problem but he doesn't have the redemptive framework Mm -hmm. to to plug it into like we would right we would say well because of this right we need someone to to take our place because we're never going to measure up as, as Conrad so well illustrates it in, in his writing. Um, we can't measure up. So we need someone who, who does right. Mm-hmm. That we've fallen short and we need something to, to, to help us out of this inescapable debt we're put in by our moral failing every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but he doesn't seem to have that other side. Like he's really good at recognizing the problem. Um, the darkness mm-hmm. of it, no less, but not the redemptive part. Yeah. And all of these, you know, examples of the darkness that we see um, and the hypocrisy, we know and the book reveals that it probably is just innate to the human heart that we yeah. are. We do have corrupt sin, sinful natures. Um, our tendency always is towards these things as much as we want to cover it up with the cloak of time or whatever you want, you would call it. <laughs> um, yeah, we really do have a need for a savior and you know for those who are who do um you know trust in christ and his atoning work we have the salvation that we can cling to uh but i think that it's healthy for us to maintain you know this you know and understand that we are actually no different than any of these evil wicked characters in this book (laughs) you know yeah Uh, like kurtz or the manager um you know, we should, we always, I think it's healthy for us to keep, um, you know, our, our sinful nature in mind that, you know, we're actually no better. It's not due to anything that we've conjured up in ourselves to make ourselves better, but we look to an external source of moral purity, um, because we can't do it by ourselves. And we take hope that he is renewing us daily with, you know, his sanctifying grace, but, um, we should never think too highly of ourselves as Christians, I think. You know, it's humbling uh, to recognize that, you know, we're no different. 
but grace has been shown to us and we can rejoice in that. Yeah. Uh, he talks about how we stand here in our civilized world on pavement, in particular speaking about Europe as opposed to Congo. Yeah. Like, you know, we stand in a civilized world between, he says, the butcher and the policeman, which is what keeps our morals intact, right? If you see the butcher or, you know, I, I, and I assume that means like a murderer, right? Or someone who the policeman is mm-hmm. after. You see, um, like the you know, the law enforcer, um, enforcing the law against evil. But then when you go out outside the pavement, outside of Europe here into the Congo, there's no like moral accountability. Um, and so of course it's this kind of, you know, these sinful desires are going to run rampant. And, uh, it's no wonder that Kurtz has elevated himself as this authority, um, and to be worshiped almost without any other like moral restraints. Yeah. And he's, he's really lost, or we see that he, yeah, there's, I guess, just no accountability for, for his, his moral actions, and so it's no wonder that out here in the jungle, there's no policeman, and so he is the butcher, you know, yeah. he runs wild, like quite literally the butcher. Yeah, yeah, for real, and that's, I think Conrad does a good job of highlighting, really kind of the depth, of of evil in that, and I think, you know, maybe you know anyone listening to this might have an instinct to say that well, there's goodness in humans too. And while that's certainly mm-hmm. true, because mm-hmm. we, you know, we don't believe that humans are always evil all the time until mm-hmm. they're saved, right? It's like they're capable right. of doing of doing good. Um, it's just that, and I think in in a civilized world, which is also what Conrad was talking about there, right? On the pavement in, in London, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's really easy to just believe that that people are, basically good right Mm. which is which is a a hallmark kind of of our culture now that is definitely a belief i think um that you know essentially humans are good but i think that's sort of can be historically untrue Mm. and i think joseph conrad is doing a good job of showing that in a literary narrative that in theory we all like to believe that we have that type of goodness that you know left to our own devices on our own that we would just perpetuate goodness and mm. and uh and a caring and loving um attitude towards other people all the time um and the reality is just that you know again in in history and in part of darkness i think it shows us that left to our own devices completely the things spiral out of control mm. rather than the other way around um and that even the best of us even ourselves are capable of horrible evil and that's really hard i think both to admit and to believe about people that we love and care about mm. but also to just i think christian the christian world do you has like a um I don't know. I, I want to say a realistic sense. I don't know if that's, I don't mean that to be offensive to anybody, but like a realistic sense of um, the fact that you and I personally are capable of great evil mm-hmm. against other people. Um, and again, not that every day we do that. It's just if, if given the right set of circumstances, mm-hmm. right. And the right set of temptations or, or the, the right, lack of restraint. Yeah. You know? or, or just, you know, whatever might cause us, like there's a, there's a combination of factors that might lead us to a place where we do awful things. Um, and I think that's what people have discovered, uh, again, in history, right. In times I just mentioned, you know, what is, you know, kind of historically known as one of the worst times in, in the modern history in times like the Holocaust mm. or, 
um, you know, things that were going on uh, in, in Russia around the same time, right? Like these awful genocides that are happening. And, and we think, oh, we're, well, we're better than that, right? It's like we look on that with a moral superiority. But the reality is that there were normal people in those circumstances who, who were capable of great evil mm-hmm. um, and, or even who turned a blind eye to that kind of evil. And I think Joseph Conrad is showing that in a, in kind of a tiny scaled down version of like, wow, like these, these religious colonists are capable of, of fantastic evil. It's like, well, yeah, no, no one in this narrative is good or is doing good things. I, like it's, it's really striking, I think. Yeah. Let me end with this. Um, I think it was two Sundays ago. My church has a prayer service Sunday nights, and we were singing a hymn called Like a River Glorious. Mm. And I couldn't help but think it's just the opposite of (laughs) the river that we read about in this chapter. Let me finish reading the lyrics to the song, Like a River Glorious. Like a river glorious is God's perfect peace, overall victorious in its bright increase. Perfect, yet it floweth fuller every day. Perfect, yet it groweth deeper all the way. We have a better river. Yeah, we do. Much better.